Welcome to the Helping Families Be Happy podcast, where we explore the often messy world of family, love, and relationships. I am your host for this podcast, Dr. Carla Marie Manley, a practicing clinical psychologist, wellness advocate, and author based in Sonoma County, California. I've teamed up with Familias Publishing to bring you real-life information about love, family, relationships, and life. And so I am absolutely thrilled to introduce today's guest, Michael Hempseed and Dame Sue Bagshaw. I am so happy to have you both here from Christchurch, New Zealand. So thank you for waking up to be to share time with us today. I'm so grateful. So before we get going, I have never talked to, at least didn't know that I was talking to, a dame before. Sue, Dame Sue Bagshaw, please do tell me, how does one earn the title of dame? Well, um, I usually say I've been around a long time. Um, um, Basically, I've worked in youth health for a long time. And, uh, you know, these days I know people swap jobs all the time. But for me, I guess it's been a bit of a, a calling, if you like, in terms of, um, I always describe myself as a youth worker with a medical degree. So basically, I work with young people, but I happen to have a medical degree so I can do some doctory stuff along the way. Beautiful. Excuse me, a bit modest here. Um, so the damehood, it's the a female equivalent of a knighthood, and it's basically the highest New Zealand honour that you can be given. So in recognition of the work that Sue's done over the last 40 years for the young people of New Zealand. Excellent. So we have a very modest dame, Sue Bagshaw, who is the equivalent of a knight. So I'm speaking to a knight S. So (laughs) (laughs) welcome to the podcast, both of you. So we know a little bit about Sue. Michael, tell us a little bit about who you are. So I'm the director of a specialist mental health service called Frontiers of Hope. And this service is designed to offer new and advanced treatments, particularly for some of the more complex issues that we're seeing in the world. Um, so that's one of the things that keeps me busy. And during my free time, I love traveling. I've been all over the world. I've visited 38 countries. 38 countries. Okay. I'm wondering, is America one of them? Yes, indeed. I've been to California. Yes. <laughs> yes. There. Yes. Wonderful. So today we're going to be talking about your book. Calming Your Child, De-Escalating Tantrums, Anxiety, Aggression, and Other Challenging Behaviors. That is quite a mouthful. And not only is it a mouthful, it's a handful for a lot of parents and caregivers out there who are looking at their children and saying, my goodness, what do I do? How do I calm my child? Yeah, very big question. And I think the the number one thing I think we have to think about is how come your child's like they are? Mm. What's underneath this? So often it's easy just to take the behavior and get angry about the behavior and try and discipline them or whatever. But actually, I think with children, it's really important we try and see it from their point of view and go, oh, so how come this is happening? What's what's triggered this? What are they thinking and that's the trouble with children because often they don't know how to put things into words so it's no point asking them because well sometimes they'll tell you they're really good some children but often they'll go I don't know or and just get angry and get frustrated because they can't say it so I think we have to help them and, and make 
educated guesses, perhaps, and help them to use their words and help them to kind of express themselves in different ways from bad behavior. Lovely. Let me I'll throw a case at you. Let's see if we can help listeners learn from your expertise here. So mom walks into the store. Little Billy starts having an intense temper tantrum right there in the store. What's a mom to do? What's a mom to do rather than pick him up and run back out to the car? She, she's probably saying, I need to go to the store. I don't want this happening. What, what would you do with little Billy? I guess it depends on how early it starts. So, <laughs> if you can catch it early, really good. Distract, distract, distract. Find something that they can think about that's not having a paddy because they don't want to be in the supermarket. Sometimes it's worth saying, look, I don't want to be in the supermarket either. It's a horrible chore, but hey, we've got to eat. How about you help me and go and fetch such and such if they're old enough to do that. But when they're right into it and they're just screaming, I think you have to leave the store and just take a moment outside and just get them to breathe and slow it down and walk around for a bit and then go back in. (laughs) And I think a big part of it is also trying to understand why Billy gets upset. So, for example, does he get overwhelmed by loud noises or busy crowds? Um, Many of us think, you know, maybe a supermarket's quite busy, but to some children, say, with sensory issues, they experience the world much more intensely or softly than other people. And some people with sensory issues hear, you know, what we interpret as quiet sounds, say someone walking on concrete, they interpret each of those sounds as if someone's banging a hammer on an anvil next to their ear. So they hear sounds very loudly. And so you have to ask, well, you know, is Billy being deliberately difficult? Or could there actually be something in the environment that's making his nervous system feel unsafe? And maybe we need to look a little bit deeper at what's causing some of this behavior. Thank you. Thank you. That was perfect. You got it too before I asked what's underneath that. And I love that you brought up sensory issues because for some parents, Awareness of sensory issues is very high. For others, it's moderate and for some non-existent. Let's slow it down for our listeners. Tell me, when you're talking about sensory issues, and you did a great job explaining it, right? We probably all know that sound of, you know, the fingernails on the chalkboard, right? And it sounds like some children are extremely sensitive to that, and that could actually cause some acting out. Did I get that right? It's a good way to describe it. One of the things to remember is that the way that we perceive the world is not the way that everyone else perceives the world. So basically, people that have got sensory issues, they experience the world um, as a more heightened, intense, and vibrant world, or a softer, calmer world. So I'll give a couple of examples of this. One of the first ones is a lot of people with sensory issues, they say tags on clothing feel really scratchy. And a lot of adults think of, come on, you're just being difficult, get over this. But actually, when you ask them what this feels like, some people say it feels like a knife grating against my skin. And so we often don't realize just how unpleasant this can be for a lot of people. Other people with sensory issues describe, say, um, gritted tiles at a swimming pool as if they're walking on spikes. And that is something that most of us would think, well, because I don't really feel that and it doesn't matter to me, we assume that everyone experiences it that way. 
people can also have the opposite where they don't receive so much information. We call this undersensitivity. And a lot of these children tend to be quite clumsy. So if I want to hold something in my hand, I need to know how much pressure to apply to it. But if I don't receive that sensory information, I either apply too much pressure or I drop things because I don't get that information. That's put very well, very well. And I really love the piece about the tags because for me, you put a tag in my clothing, I feel it. I feel that little thing, right? And people don't understand it, right? For someone who's not experienced, they're like, it's just a tag, ignore it. But you can imagine for a child who can't express that and might not understand even what's happening, how that would feel excruciating. It's very much on a spectrum, but at the extreme end, some people say looking at white paper is like looking into a spotlight. And they say Mm. um, being hit with um, gentle rain feels like they're being shot with bullets. So you can imagine how unpleasant the world can be. So can we take a little dive into, not, not too deep of a dive into the physiological underpinnings of what we're talking about here, but can you tell for the parent who says, oh my God, now I'm recognizing this, you know, little Susie is very hypersensitive to this and maybe little Johnny is under sensitive over here. What's happening in the physiology? What do we know? What can the medical science world teach us? Probably more to do with how the brain receives the information. It's probably not to do with the actual bits of the skin that are being affected. It's probably more to do with how the brain's processing the information that's coming in from the ears or the eyes or the smell or the bits of skin. And that's often linked with um, things like autism spectrum disorder or those kind of things. Uh, It's not necessarily autism per se, but it may be linked with. So it's how the brain's developing and how it kind of processes things differently that's the key. Mm, And that makes so much sense because we know that some children on the autism spectrum, they actually really like their skin brushed with a hairbrush or special brushes because it feels very good and very soothing. And so while that might not feel good to the average person, for some people, it is actually exactly what they need to calm down. Yeah. And the other two big ones can be if someone has a brain injury. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people say um, fluorescent tubing lighting. They find that really quite distressing. That it flickers and it gives them headaches. And then also people with PTSD tend to have heightened senses. So we know we've just gone through this massive pandemic that's had a huge impact on a lot of young people. And so around the world, teachers are reporting far more students with sensory issues in the past. And in some cases, it could be a response from the pandemic. Thank you so much for bringing this up because maybe it's worth, it's definitely worth repeating that. The piece about really focusing on this, that so much we underestimate PTSD. Some people just throw the word around and don't really understand it. Or they think, oh, you have to be a combat veteran to suffer from PTSD. But what we realize is that any person in any situation can experience PTSD if they feel overwhelmed, terrified, out of control by 
a stimulating event or overstimulating event, however you want to look at it. And so we can see, thank you so much that for bringing this up, because so many children who were deprived of resources and healthy outlets during the pandemic that they were certainly traumatized by not understanding what was happening to the world around them what happened to my friends what happened to grandma grandpa where did everything go why is the world so unpredictable and then we look at things like school shootings right even if a child was not in that classroom of course they may ultimately have ptsd did i get that right Absolutely. Sometimes I think we should call it post-traumatic brain injury because wow. we, we think of injury as something when you, it, you know, you explode something or you break something. But actually injury is, is what it is, is upsetting the brain processes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things can upset the brain processes, sometimes only temporarily, but often for a long, long time. Um, and so, and that injury can come from a verbal, emotional, physical, obviously, sexual abuse, but also the experience of being terrified or the experience of being frightened by, as you said, in the school shootings, they might not have been actually there, but just hearing about them. And that's one thing with some young children, it's really important not to let them watch the news. Because Thank that you. Can be a brain injury. <laughs> Thank you. I was just going to ask you about that, and I wholeheartedly agree. We sometimes are so inured to the effects of the news, whether it's on a television or a computer screen or even radio, that we forget yeah. that we have highly impressionable brains, you know, right at our, you know, they're scurrying around the house. They are our children, you know, yeah. age one day, one day, right up till they're the leave the house at 18, 19, 21. And they are very susceptible to all of these negative influences. And Sue, I've never heard it phrased that way before as a post-traumatic brain injury and how it upsets the brain's processing. And I love that because it's so simple and so true. Yeah, yeah. And if I can just mention, uh, in the book, we reference a study where they found people that were either there on the day of the Boston bombing or people mm. that watched it repeatedly on TV. And they found the people that watched it repeatedly on TV reported higher levels of distress than people that were actually there. And that's quite surprising. We call this vicarious or secondary trauma. And many people think, well, say watching the news, oh, it's surely not as bad as being there. But often when you watch the news, you get something from multiple angles. And you're also helpless in that situation. So sometimes we underestimate the impact that um, children watching traumatic things on the news can have. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing up the vicarious secondary trauma because it's so important that we sometimes forget that the brain really soaks things in especially at night when we're about to go to sleep and there's nothing interrupting those thoughts and feelings and, and the, what we witness on TV. And so here you have a child preparing for bed, exposed to a traumatizing news episode, and then they go to sleep. 
We used to give them lullabies and now we're often giving them traumatic material. So thank you. And again, this is not about shaming or blaming anybody, but let's switch up habits to create because, you know, familias, we have the 10 habits of a healthy family and they are love together, play together, learn together, work together, talk together, heal together, read together, eat together, laugh together, give together. And when we look at those habits because we're trying to make families find a way to become happier and healthier and discussions like this give us a chance to pause and say oh well I may have been doing this in the in the past but let me shift it up and do something different in the future right yeah perfect and and maybe one of those habits to change would be watch something nice together before you go to bed not the news (laughs) yes laugh together would it be nice to go to sleep after having laughed together so I have a question for you, Michael. When we're looking at at your book, Calming Your Child, what would you say is key in that book to helping families be happy together? Unfortunately, I think a lot of families are getting torn apart by children with serious behavioral issues. Um, We often know that having a child with behavioral difficulties can put severe stress on a marriage. Many children with behavioural issues don't sleep very well at night. They can wake up with nightmares. They can wake up screaming. And so, unfortunately, they can wake up the whole house. And we know that when people are tired, when people are not, you know, sleep-deprived, that's when you know, happy families don't happen. So I think one of the key things that brings about happy families from the book is really recognizing that there's a deep cause to some of these behavioral problems. But also we talk about many ways that this can be um, addressed or treated. And so it's really knowing that if you do have an unhappy family at the moment because of a child with behavioral problems, you know, that can change and your family can be good again. And what, so, so thank you for offering that beautiful light of hope. So back to Dame Sue, Sue, can you tell me what would you, if you have one or two top tips for a mom and dad who are saying, oh my goodness, I want a happy family. I want a healthy family. You know, I I want this, but it's just too much distress. There are too many tantrums. There's too much anxiety. You know, my kids are acting out. What are some like things without giving away the whole book, right? But just some highlights. What are one or two practical tips that a parent could get their hands around, their heart around? Well, I think a lot of the research here in New Zealand has shown that actually families that eat together Mm. are happy. So eating together, I think, is one thing. It's not easy to do these days because everybody's working shifts and everybody's, you know, all over the place. But I think eating together is really important. If you get that habit right from the start when they're little and then keep it going through teenage times, that's so helpful. Just round the table together, even if it's only for five or ten minutes every day, really helpful. Okay. Um, Before we go to number two, I have to dive in here because I can imagine some parenting asking parents asking so this means that the tv probably is off for this five or ten minutes yeah so we're sitting at the right. table tv is yeah. off what about cell phones at the table do we want even if we can only squeeze in five ten minutes of together time do we want those cell phones off or on rhetorical question off. here off, 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 <laughs> off. 
Okay. And do you know what? I think that's harder for the parents than it is for the children sometimes. And so I think, yeah, definitely devices off. Devices off. the whole point is you're looking at each other, you're talking together at the same time as you're eating. Um, and it's really interesting. Humans are the only animals, if we think of ourselves as the animal kingdom, part of it, we're the only animals that eat looking at each other. Most other animals eat side by side. Mm. Isn't that interesting? So we need yes. to encourage that because that's part yes. of our growth and part of our brain growth and anything that helps brain growth for children is important. Excellent. So another question, thinking of parents saying, oh, darn it, I missed the boat. I didn't start, you know, Dame Sue is saying we should encourage this type of behavior from early childhood forward. But my kids are in their teens or maybe they're five, six, seven. Is it too late? Never, never too late. Never too late. No. No. You might, they might be a little resistant at first, but oh, yes, <laughs> yes, maybe they won't like the change. But if we persist, they'll eventually come on board, right? Even if you start, yeah, exactly. If you should start once a week, it could be a Friday night or, or whatever. If you start once a week and then you start increasing it, so you do twice a week and maybe Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then just gradually increase the amount that you do. I like it, baby steps. Baby steps, even for adults, adult steps, baby adult steps. One father said to me once, inch by inch, it's a cinch. Yard by yard, you make it hard. There you go. I like that. And then another tip. So that is a really good one. And we can we can sink our teeth into it. No pun intended, but we can sink our teeth into that one. What's another tip? I guess the other one is if you've got more than one child, try and spend some time alone with each child. The number of bad behaviors that accrue from jealousy. I think my dad or my mom favors my sibling. And they may not at all, but the child thinks they do. So I think having favorites obviously is a no-no if you can help it. Because sometimes you're naturally attracted to the child you know, that might be the same as you, might be your opposite, or might be who you wanted to be and you're not. And it's the other kids feel it, whether you say anything or not. So I think spending some individual time with each child, if you can, is really important. Um, so they each get a treat and they're treated as equally as you possibly can. I mean, it's really hard, but if you can, that's really helpful. Well, and it sounds if we break it down and follow the baby step approach, it could be 10 minutes with one on a Monday, 10 minutes with the other on a Tuesday, 10 minutes with the other, depending upon how many children you have. They don't yeah. have to be vast amount of times. It sounds more like it's focus time. Yeah. And making them feel special. Yeah. Everybody likes to be made. Everyone likes to feel special and feel needed. Ab absolutely. So I'm going to hop over to Michael. Michael, back to the sensory piece. So if we have parents listening and saying, gosh, you know, I never thought of this sensory piece and I don't have the time or maybe the money to go have my child tested. What would you say about a parent who suspects that maybe a sensory issue is at work or would want to know more? So sometimes um, you can go down 
a formal diagnosis route. But other times it's quite easy to pick up. Say if you see a child that's putting their hands over their ears around loud noises, that could possibly be an indicator. Another really clear indicator is children that either thump their head against a wall or on a desk repeatedly. That's often a really good indicator that they've got sensory issues. So sometimes you don't necessarily need a formal diagnosis. And then once you're aware of this, you can start to make changes. I know of a family that has autism and they had a child, uh, I think he was having something like 30 or 40 meltdowns every single day. So imagine uh, that household was not much fun at all. But when they learned about sensory issues, they got him noise-cancelling headphones, which cut out a lot of the noise in the environment. And now maybe he has one meltdown a day. So sometimes um, it's recognizing um, what is going on and not just thinking this child's difficult for the sake of it, um, they're being obnoxious. Um, We even hear terms like psychopaths being applied to children with behavioral problems. And we have to ask, well, hold on, what's actually going on underneath this? And we try and um, in the book get people to realize the child is probably distressed. They're not probably a psychopath or something like that. So it's really recognizing that, you know, what's underlying this behavior. And if you're aware that sensory issues can be a problem, then it's trying to um, change the world a little bit for them. So you take away some of the things that distress them. That's so beautifully put. So again, it's about slowing down to find out what's going on underneath rather than, as you've said, I've heard that before, oh, my child's a monster or my child's just trying to get attention or my child's just a drama queen. When in fact, there's something beneath the surface that needs looking at that really deserves to be looked at because the child doesn't want to be in pain or acting out any more than we want the child to be in pain and acting out. Very much so. Yes. So any other pieces that either of you would like to highlight? One of the other big ones that we talk about in the book is the importance of sleep. Uh, Most people, when they think about their health curriculum at school, they're probably taught about eating well and exercising. But we're starting to discover that sleep's very, very important to our well-being. And if children aren't sleeping well, then that's when behavioral issues happen. For older children, it's been discovered that poor sleep is a significant risk for suicide. And so a lot of parents just treat poor sleep as well part of life. But we really encourage people to look at if their child or they have sleep problems to do something about it. Almost all sleep problems can be at least managed or cured with the right help. And so that can be quite a simple cause of some of this um, difficult behavior. And it's something that many people don't consider. So we focus a lot on sleep as well within the book. Thank you. Thank you. And I would think I'm a big sleep fan myself. And people, I think, tend to underestimate adults need seven to eight hours right about their children often need even sometimes, especially our teens. They may need 10 to 12 hours of sleep a night, yet often they're getting to bed at midnight and waking up at six to get ready for school. And we think, oh, they're okay with six hours of sleep, but we forget that they're likely texting once they're in bed or getting woken up by text. So we have children when their brains really need lots of sleep and they're not getting the the very sleep that is the foundation for being happy and mentally healthy. And another thing and physically that healthy. I'm sorry. 
very much so. It's something else people don't know about sleep is um, we reference a study that suggests it's the last 60 to 90 minutes of sleep that's the most, the most crucial. It's the deepest and most restorative part of sleep. So we often think, well, if someone's supposed to get, say, eight hours sleep and they only get seven, close enough. But actually, we're depriving people of the most precious part of their sleep. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's fascinating research. And when we realize, too, that sleep, right, the brain's being cleansed. When we look at that and think of it just from, you know, parents for yourselves, your brain's getting cleansed when you get a good seven to eight hours of sleep. Your children, don't we all want cleaner brains that are, you know, higher functioning so that our bodies feel good, too? Yeah, so thank you for bringing up that important element. You know, just one, one more piece. What about diet? I know many families are so busy that they end up with, um, you know, a fast food diet or a, a bit here or a bit there. What's your perspective on diet and why some children might be acting out or not, not as happy as they might be? Well, and there's a lovely saying that says, you are what you eat. Yes. Um, so if we put rubbish in, we can expect rubbish out. So I think really important, I mean, you know, takeaways once a week is a special treat, fine, but not every day, purely because they don't have the balance in them. So you need a balance. That's the whole point. You need to, you eat to live and you need a balance in terms of obviously fruit, veggies, protein. And although men perhaps should have less red meat and perhaps we should all have less red meat, men because of their heart attack risk, but as all of us because of climate change. But um, at the same time, you need some. Children definitely need some. Although if you become a vegetarian, you have to be very careful that you have enough protein. And that means beans and some things that children don't like. So again, um, trying to make sure you have a bit of everything and not too much of anything is really a good maxim, I think. Um, Balance. Balance, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and special treats are fine, you know, Lolly's special treat, but not every day. And the same thing with any of the kind of fizzy drinks are probably disastrous because you get a taste for the lovely sugar and then you can't drink anything else because it tastes awful because it hasn't got sugar in. And then, whoa, that's the disaster. So really important, again, fizzy drinks, perhaps one a, one a week as a special treat. But, you know, Adam's Ale is the best. What is Adam's ale? Water. <laughs> oh, Adam, water. Thank you. Never heard that one. Water Thank is you. the best. Water's the yeah. best. Stay away from those sugary sodas and yeah. have some water. And because I also think we sometimes forget that just like an adult, if you have, say, a donut in the morning or a sugary drink in the morning, and then your blood sugar drops and you yeah. feel grouchy and irritable. Well, when we give our children a high sugar breakfast or a high yeah. sugar lunch or you know whatever it is, they're going to have that same drop, but they might not understand why. And we might look at them and say, oh, you're irritable and grouchy, but their body's saying, wait a second, I didn't get any, you know, protein here or complex carbohydrates. So their body's yeah. knowing it, but they're of course, they don't have the understanding. So I imagine that food is a big part or an underestimated part of behavioral issues. Yeah, definitely. And we used to talk a lot about food colorings and preservatives that cause problems. I think the research isn't showing that's quite so important these days. But at the same time, 
avoiding food colorings and preservatives is probably a good idea. And and added sugars, which can be stuck in in even sh- cereals that say all natural, right? They can just dump a boatload of sugar in. <laughs> so another it. thing to be aware of. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could go on forever. I, I think there's so much about children to be said. So I will just wrap us up here and ask Wonder. people. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. One final, yeah. One final thing to mention is that we try and give people hope. We know there's many that's good. And Michael, would you like to add anything else? One of the things we know is that many families that have children with behavioural difficulties, they often feel hopeless. They often feel that this is the way life is always going to be. They know they're miserable, they're not happy, and they think there's nothing that can be done about this. In the book, we really try and convey the concept of hope to people. And this is not just theoretical hope. So both of us have worked with people that have been through significant earthquakes. Um, The city we live in was hit by a series of earthquakes. And we've seen people's lives that have been absolutely wrecked by that, but have gone on to recover. We've also worked with people that have experienced significant sexual or physical abuse. And sometimes people wonder, after something as terrible as that, could there be any hope of a good life after that? And yet both of us have seen many people that unfortunately have had some terrible things happen to them, but with the right help and support, have gone on to do really well in life. So I think one of the most important messages that we try and get across in the book is that there is hope. There are things that can do. And in the book, we offer many different strategies. We don't just say, oh, there's this one thing you need to do. Um, We probably have at least 40 or 50 different strategies. So every child's different, but it's so important to know that there are things that can be done. Thank you, because having having hope is always critical. And then having actionable strategies to bring those changes to life, that will really be a godsend to so many parents who feel a little hopeless. So thank you. And the book for our listeners is Calming Your Child, De-Escalating Tantrums, Anxiety, Aggression, and Other Challenging Behaviors. So Dame, Sue, and Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, So we have a Twitter handle with just calming your child. We have a Facebook page. And then, uh, of course, the book's available um, through Amazon and major retailers. So Twitter, calming your child. And then look for the book on Amazon. And And any, I'm sorry? And bookstores as well. And bookstores and on the Familius website. And anything else? Those are probably the main ways. Those are the main ways to reach you. Excellent. So again, Twitter, Calming Your Child. And this is Michael Hempseed, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Hempseed is H-E-M-P-S-E-E-D. And we have Dame Sue, S-U-E, Bagshaw, B-A-G-S-H-A-W. Thank you so much for being with us today. It has been such a joy and a pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. So as we conclude today's podcast, I'd like to thank Familius Publishing for their support in bringing this podcast to your ears and your heart. We'd be thrilled if you'd subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on iTunes and social media. 
If you'd like more wonderful Familius content, be sure to visit us at Familius.com, where you'll find our Habit Hub blog, as well as, as a spectacular selection of books for families, such as the amazing book we talked about today, Calming Your Child. One step at a time, we can and will make the world a better place. Thank you for sharing your time with me, Dr. Carla Marie Manley. It's been a joy and a true pleasure. Be well and shine as only you can do.